0: This is Hear Me Out. I'm your host, Celeste Hedley. Earlier this summer, the Supreme Court ruled that race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina were unconstitutional, effectively ending affirmative action nationwide. We don't know yet how much this will change the faces we see on college campuses. But advocates for diversity and social mobility have framed this as a major, major step back. And you've probably heard that argument. But what you might not have heard is the argument that affirmative action was never the gift that some thought it was, and it might actually have failed the people who needed it most.
1: I'm seeing these statistics that we see in our newspapers play out. None of my friends are getting to college. All of these other Black kids that I know who grow up in poverty, they don't make it. There's this great distance between me and my friends.
0: Freelance journalist Bertrand Cooper joins us on Hear Me Out in just a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back to Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Headley. While I'm painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffer discrimination, I hold our enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles that all men are created equal, are equal citizens, and must be treated equally before the law. The university's admissions policies are rudderless, race-based preferences. Those policies fly in the face of our colorblind constitution. That's an excerpt from the concurring opinion that Justice Clarence Thomas wrote earlier this year when the Supreme Court effectively dismantled affirmative action. Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson joined Justice Sonia Sotomayor in the dissent, adding, with let them eat cake obliviousness, today the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat, but deeming race irrelevant in law, does not make it so in life. Look, it's early days, judicially speaking, and we don't know how this decision will change college admissions and how long the impact will actually last. We have a decent idea though. The University of California, Berkeley was barred from considering race in admissions for 2016 and 2017. And as a result, former acting Dean Melissa Murray told NPR, Uh, The drop-off in African-American students was dramatic and immediate. Not only were fewer admitted to UC Berkeley, but there was another impact. Fewer Black students wanted to go to Berkeley because they assumed there would be fewer students there who looked like them. So a lot of people are worried that we will see similar impacts at schools all across the country now. But other people say affirmative action was never that great gift that it was billed as because had never been diversifying campuses as much as people thought it was. Our guest today is in that camp. Writer Bertrand Cooper joins us now. Hello.
1: Hey.
0: And for those who don't know who you are, tell us what you do.
1: So I am a freelance writer, researcher. Uh, Most of my work has been in New York Times, uh, now most recently The Atlantic, and then prior to that, Current Affairs.
0: So... Uh, You mentioned The Atlantic, which is how we found you. You wrote a piece um, for The Atlantic in June of this year called The Failure of Affirmative Action. And the tagline was, for the Black poor, a world without affirmative action is just the world as it is, no different than before. Is that a pretty fair summation of your argument that affirmative action never did help the Black poor specifically?
1: Yeah, that is a perfect summation of my argument. And still something I feel uh, very strongly today. Uh, you know, the reason that I wrote this piece is because I knew at this time, everyone involved in education felt pretty strongly which way the Supreme Court was going to go on affirmative action, that race-conscious admissions were going to be removed. So I knew that we'd be assessing, you know, the era of affirmative action, which uh, race-conscious admissions had get received approval in 1978 up to, you know, this year so we'd be looking over that time and because of the very very strong association between black americans and poverty whenever we do a policy that is thought to be race conscious the assumption is the focus of that policy must be the black poor that is not what we see looking from 1978 to 2023 um Just a year ago, if any listener who identifies anywhere left of center had seen this stat that only 14% of low-income high school students graduate from a four-year school, they wouldn't bat an eye at it. That aligns with what most people expect, that poor students are not doing very well at college. And that statistic that I just repeated, that's been, you know, circulated since Obama. Prior to Obama, it's just been kind of, you know, a rule that only one out of every ten low-income high school students is going on to graduate from a four-year college. That all happened under affirmative action. It's been going on this entire time. Now, I came in contact with this because, you know, I am uh, black and white. Both sides of my family are poor. Have been poor for a generation prior to me arriving, and I grew up just around the ideas that circulated regarding affirmative action. There's a lot of folklore around it that basically says if you're black you got just a straight shot going to college right out of high school. You're just going to be welcomed into it. Um, and so it's not just my experience. Like I'm going up really, if there was a last rung on the ladder, I'm coming from homelessness and foster care. I'm really at that last stage of poverty where if a child stays there too long, um, they're going to vanish one way or another. It's not a good place to be. That's where my friends are. So I'm physically watching as I move from high school to college I'm seeing these statistics that we see in our newspapers, I'm seeing them play out. None of my friends are getting to college. Most of them are not graduating from high school. All of these other black kids that I know who grow up in poverty, they don't make it. And then I'm going to college myself and I'm seeing what systems exist for me. And all that was there for me is this form called the FAFSA, which basically because I had fostered youth status, I should have been able to get a ton of state and federal aid. Unfortunately... You have to be able to verify your status. And as a foster kid, I didn't have community elders or people who knew me who could write on official letterhead about my fractured living situation. So I just didn't get that aid. And I bumbled, you know, my way collecting debt as I went from community college to a four year to eventually graduate school. And by the time I get to graduate school, there's this great distance between me and uh, my friends, you know, the ones that I grew up with. But now that I'm in these college-educated circles, and this is back in you know, 2016 is when I'm in graduate school, and I move from that to other college-educated jobs, every time affirmative action is you know under threat during this time period, all throughout the 2010s, I'm very open about my background, I'm very open about my race, I'm very open about coming from poverty. Um, people would know this about me, and whenever affirmative action seemed like it was on the chopping block, they would give me their condolences and seem particularly concerned, as if me being black and poor, I must be the one who was hit hardest by this.
0: I, I'm just going to break in here because for those who don't um, recognize the um, FAFSA, that's the free application for federal student aid. That's how you get sort of determined your eligibility for any financial assistance when you're you're going to college. So, uh, my first question is about separating. Um, race-based admissions from um, income-based admissions, right? I mean, I feel like that's going to be most people's first question because a lot of people in the past have been told that if they are to assume that uh, a black person is somebody who is in poverty, that that's racist, right? That if they make that assumption, that's a racist assumption. Um, And they may think that that's what you're telling them to do at this point. Is that what you're saying?
1: I am. So uh, the part of that that I'm confirming is that it is a racist assumption to assume all uh, black people are poor. There are multiple classes of black people right now for the past few years. When you look up the poverty rate for black Americans, it'll normally be between 18 and 20 percent. The other roughly 80 percent of black Americans are not poor. Um, Thinking about income based admissions versus race based admissions, I think a great lens is to think of these as barriers. You can have race as a barrier, you can have income as a barrier, Um, and there's other barriers people can name historically in America, but just focusing on race and income for a second, white students at Harvard, they do not face race as a barrier, but they do face income as a barrier. And so most of us know not to expect a lot of poor white children to be at Harvard. What affirmative action does, what is explicitly intended to do, is to remove race as a barrier. But it leaves income intact so that when someone like myself or um, my you know, foster sister, she's also going through the college process. What it does now is it creates a pool of black students who are no longer race is not a barrier, but income remains. And the same assumptions we would make for white Americans, we should make for black Americans, which is that income is now going to be a barrier. Um When I was applying to, you know, college and high school, I was not bringing the same resume that someone raised in the upper class of Black America was bringing. Um, And that's something we see a lot in um, elite colleges. You know, the way this plays out is that when you actually look into the family backgrounds of Black students at elite campuses, most of them are going to be from the middle and upper class and by a large, large margin. Um, The same year that Harvard achieved perfect Black representation, which is, 15% of its freshman class were black, um, which matched the population of black Americans for that age. A team of Harvard economists asked the question, how many of our students are coming from poverty, are coming from the bottom 20% of Americans? And at that time, in the early 2000s, they found that it was just 3%. In the early 2010s, it moved up slightly to 5%. But what that means is right now, when Harvard lets in, say, 154 black students into its freshman class, maybe seven of those students come from black poverty. The rest, the other 140 odd students are coming from the black middle and upper class. Um, Just make that a little bit more concrete because class is kind of nebulous, but I think people understand dollars more. The middle of the middle class right now for America is going to be about 65 to $67,000 a year. To be in the upper class, you basically have to double that. You have to come from a household that makes around $140,000 a year. And to be poor right now, you have to be for a family of four earning less than thirty k. So basically, to move up to the middle of each class, you got to double your parents' income.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I don't want to downplay um, generation after generation of uh, inequality in this nation and what that has done to Black Americans. I mean, um, Black Americans because of systemic racism are the second most likely to be living in poverty just after Native Americans, and we know why that is. Um, So I'm not trying to downplay that. I just want to help people understand that these are two different things, right? uh, Affirmative action, which is supposed to be dealing with race disparities and income disparities, but affirmative action, getting rid of affirmative action, as you say, we're no longer looking at racial disparities, but For black people, I guess what you're saying is maybe this is a one-two punch. Is that fair? Like now we're not, for a a person who's growing up both black and poor, now they, (laughs) now it's even harder? Or are you saying it just is the same? It, it, It doesn't make a
1: difference? So what you brought up about generations is a really great point to bring up. And I think that that helps establish the piece a little bit more. All of these people in these different classes, they're having children. For the American poor in general, about half of Americans or half of Gen X, I should say, did not grow up to make more than their parents. So just half of the American poor at baseline is likely to be second generation poor. For the black poor, they're more likely to be second or third generation poor. So we're talking about poverty being in the same family again and again and again. They're not floating up to be the middle class or the upper class of black Americans. They're just staying the black poor. So from 1978 to 2023, when affirmative action is running and we have these numbers like only one out of every 10 low income high school students are obtaining a bachelor's degree. That means that it is the same poor black families who are being passed over by this policy again and again and again. And only the black middle and upper class are the ones benefiting from this policy. So going back to, you know, your great summation of my article, I'm saying in a very, very literal way, for those black families at the bottom, whose parents were at the bottom, whose grandparents were at the bottom, there really isn't any difference not having this policy. They already weren't going to be able to um, attend college. And to get more into it, something a lot of people don't know is that affirmative action was never federally mandated. It was just made optional for colleges. You were permitted to use race-conscious admissions if your school could find no other way to pick between two students. There's a researcher named Sean Reardon, who was very famous for popularizing income segregation between races and showing how, you know, a black middle-class neighborhood often has a lower average income than, say, a white middle-class neighborhood. When you do the calculation, you find that there's only about 200 colleges that were competitive enough to use race conscious admissions. Again, it wasn't federally required. It was just permitted that you could do this. Those 200 colleges that had to use race conscious admissions. um, They were mostly elite schools that are going to have like all of their applications are going to be the same near perfect student. And they might make a decision based on race for the benefit of diversity um, so going back to the Sean Reardon individual, when they do the calculation, maybe each year 10,000 students total are allowed into one of these 200 um, elite schools each year because of affirmative action. It's not 10,000 black students. It's not 10,000 Hispanic students. It's not 10,000 indigenous students. It's if you add up all of the non-white students, 10,000 get to go to one of these elite colleges based on affirmative action and almost that whole block is going to be the middle and upper class, not just from black Americans, but the middle and upper class from Hispanic Americans and from these other groups. Um, So about as literally as possible for the black poor, it's just another day.
0: I mean, I don't argue with that. And I, and certainly your experience is, is not mine. You know, my, the black side of my family had, college degrees going back to just after the Civil War. I mean, when Atlanta University was opened, Mm -hmm. my great-grandmother immediately went to school and got her teaching degree, you know. Um, And so we were always black bougie and coming (laughs) from the black middle class, always. Um, But, you know, the case for affirmative action, even though the people who benefited from it most were white women, even given that, The case for it is strong in terms of what it has done for those of our race who did benefit from it. And by that, I mean, um, we have all this data showing that those who probably did get into college, who may not have without these affirmative action uh, policies being in place, did a lot better in the long run than those who went to say lower status universities who probably didn't benefit from reaction. They were probably more likely to end up going to graduate school. They were probably more likely to earn professional degrees. They ended up having higher incomes, meaning they were probably more likely to pass on generational wealth to their descendants, um, meaning that they probably ended up becoming an engine for social mobility in some cases for the first time in their family's history right? So they became data points in our race for the first time, <laughs> right? In many cases. So that, that they become little engines of, of stability. Even if they didn't help one particular demographic, the people that they did help, they really helped.
1: That's completely fair. And the thing for white Americans, because we treat class as real, for white Americans, because we understand it as a rigid hierarchy within white communities. We've knocked down, trickle down, as a reasonable theory of economics. We know that from the top of white America to the bottom, there is not this stream of benefit. And so when we choose to benefit the middle or upper class of white Americans, we expect the class that gets the benefit to say out loud they're the ones getting the benefit. Black Americans do not treat class as real yet. They don't treat it and stand up and say it is middle class and upper class black kids who have benefited for the past, you know, 50 odd years from this. It is us who will be hurt. They know because history has shown this. That typically if you're trying to leverage Americans for, you know, sympathy that you can use for political currency, You're not white. You got to share these stories of trauma and tragedy and horror. And the only place to get that is from the black poor. And so we are leveraging our idea of the black poor and how bad off they are to keep petitioning for affirmative action in higher education without acknowledging that is the black poor. They're not going to get that trickle down. So everything that you said did happen for the middle class and upper class of black Americans. It did help solidify their position. But, you know, from 1978 to 2023 is a long time to calculate when's the trickle down coming. And I don't think it was coming next year.
0: That's a very good point. Uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, we will be back with Bertrand Cooper, who just scored. I'm going to give you that point. Um, this is a podcast from Slate called Hear Me Out. I'm Celeste Hadley. We'll be back talking about whether affirmative action is a loss or not. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley. And with me today is Bertrand Cooper, who says, we may have lost affirmative action, but it wasn't a big loss. Okay. So just before the break, um, I was talking about all that we gained with affirmative action. And you said it wasn't that big of a gain. So let's talk about one of the biggest arguments when affirmative action was first argued the justification, the only one that was accepted by Justice Powell at the time was that compelling state interest, right? That this diverse student body um, had a national importance, and that not only was it important to diversify uh, a student body because it was a moral thing, but the the government doesn't have interest in morality, but that it, it had a national interest because it was better for everybody, including all of those white students, right? And we do now have all these metrics showing that um, both white kids and people from a higher economic background, we have decades of these research showing that they do get a huge benefit. They have a, a more positive attitude toward people of a different race. They are tend to rate them higher in terms of their intelligence. They tend to have more empathy towards people of another race when they are in classes with them. They even are more likely to show higher rates of civic participation when they are in a diverse student body, what about that?
1: I would not say that there was no benefit to affirmative action. I would, you know, uh, I would support what you said previously that for the black middle and the upper class, it helped create very, very real gains. And I would say that also on diversity, like I believe in that research that you're referencing, that it does have these benefits. I will say that. You mentioned earlier that you uh, come from, you know, the bougie black folks. And a lot of times people forget that that word bougie, that slang version of bourgeoisie is a slander from the black poor and lower working class towards the other groups of black folks and black people being on these elite campuses does increase diversity in a number of ways. I do wonder To what degree it increases the beneficial opinion towards the uh, black poor because obviously the black middle, black upper class and the black poor have a history of class hostility and conflict between them. They do not share all the same values. There have been many instances in history where the uh, black working class has been hostile towards the black poor. The black poor have obviously been um, hostile towards the other classes. That's why that word bougie, you know is still in circulation. And so when you look at a place like Harvard, where 85% of its black students are coming from the black middle, and the black upper class, the other white students there are learning you know, to uh, appreciate the humanity of other black students who come from you know, their same peer group, economically speaking. But I don't know if it's offering the same uh, benefits to the black poor and the perceptions of the black poor. It may be.
0: So here's the thing, Bertrand. And and here's why, like, part of me is just, like, so upset and, no, we just need to put affirmative action back. And it's because affirmative action was never meant to be the answer, right? Affirmative action was dearly fought for, not just by Martin Luther King, but by generations of civil rights activists, our ancestors, our grandmothers and great-grandmothers. And it was supposed to be a first step as we worked toward solving systemic problems that are still with us. Um, and it was sort of be, it was supposed to be a tent pole that would give us the space to work within <laughs> to fix some of these other problems to, f- to make it so that there weren't these schools in poor neighborhoods that didn't have music programs and higher math etc 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 and, and to, to do all these other things um but that none of those things happened that we, we weren't supposed to have still be working with neighborhoods where redlining was happening where insurance was three and four times higher for black and brown folks than they were for white folks and so you couldn't afford to fix your roof when a hurricane came through um uh, all of these tent pole achievements were supposed to hold up the structure to give us the space to fix those things but what's happening now it feels like to me is that we're pulling down the tent poles collapsing everything and we're losing the space without ever having solved anything that was going on inside and so it feels as though we are being dragged back and losing even that tiny bit of progress that we made without fixing any of the things that we are supposed to have fixed. And we're being dragged back by the very, not the exact same people, but nearly the same people ideologically, who fought that progress in the 1860s, in the 1920s, in the 1950s, in the 1960s. I mean, that's the, the part of me that disagrees with you. That's the part of me speaking to you now. It's that part, which is like, why are we losing even this?
1: I can't borrow from the benefits that the black middle or the black upper class has. And I have no issue with the black middle and the black upper class lamenting what's been taken from them um, because something has been taken from them. And like you said at the beginning, we don't know what's coming next. It may get worse for them, but I don't think I can convince people to come up with concrete policies that target the black poor unless I can acknowledge the degree to which we weren't targeted previously and that we weren't part of this we that got to have these benefits. And, um, you know, I'm in a line with, uh, you know, Professor William Julius Wilson, who wrote in 1978, the declining significance of race. And he was maybe uh, the first black professor and someone who also came from poverty to note that that initial push for black progress right after the civil rights era had been mostly absorbed by the black middle and the black upper class. And since then, Everyone who's attempted to diagnose how the benefits of racial progress have been distributed has repeated that the black poor aren't getting it. So I have no issue saying that this is a loss for the black middle and the black upper class. But if I can't say that at the same time as I admit that the black poor didn't get their share, it didn't help us, we're not a part of this we, and I can't contact some, you know, wealthy black people out there when I need to pay my rent. So we can say we in the collective of the race and I understand the political uh, motivations behind it. But on the ground, it just I don't know that it uh, feels helpful to me.
0: Uh, We're going to take another break uh, and we will be back in just a moment. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley talking to Bertrand Cooper and we will be back in just a moment. We're back. With me is Bertrand Cooper, and we're talking about what we lost, if anything, when the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action. Um, As I said, Bertrand Cooper is talking to me today, making the case that affirmative action never really did anything for the Black poor, and so losing it was no loss. This is Hear Me Out, a podcast from Slate. I'm Celeste Headley. And so as we wrap up our discussion here, which I think for me has been really, really, I don't want to say educational, but I mean, I, I, I'm finding myself having to think really deeply about uh, assumptions I've made because, you know, I come from this long line of people who believe deeply in, you know, the original motto of the National Association of Colored Women was lifting as we rise, right? There was this always this idea, especially... Among Black women, that um, we would raise each other together. That's how we would do this, <laughs> right? Um, solidarity, and and as we, as a as a race, we would lift each other. Um, and you're right. That's not how this has worked out. I don't think, frankly, that for the most part, there's ever been enough power to do that. And that was intention. I don't. I think that was intentional. Um, on the part of society. And to that end, I think you're right that affirmative action never did what it should have done for the black poor. On the other hand, it seems clear from the original creation of affirmative action that it was never designed to reach the poor specifically. So then what's the solution? I mean, I, I feel as though Affirmative action had benefits, and I'm willing to absolutely um, cede to you the fact that it it didn't seem to benefit the poor, the black poor specifically. So then, what what is it that would have helped? What is it that we need?
1: <laughs> you know, the issue is when you try to make it one solution. If I could implore any listener that you have who is, uh, say, middle or upper class, who also happens to be a parent. And ask them to think about everything they do to set up their child. Think about the home they live in, the neighborhood they picked, the job that they work, all of the resources, like really make a list. Then imagine all of that being taken away so that the only thing that was good in a kid's life was school. Is that enough? Are you doing everything else to support your child just for fun? Is that why you're doing all this? Or is a good school? And a good, you know, is that just one part of what you've decided is necessary to support your child? And so, you know, when we're thinking of solution, it, it's, it's not one solution. A whole suite of things are needed to help the, the black poor. I, I don't think there is a single silver bullet here, if that makes sense.
0: So affirmative action has been one of the most controversial topics in the United States for a long time, and we know you have your own opinion about it. Luckily, it's really easy to let us know what you think. You can email us. It's hearmeout@slate.com. Many of you have already been sharing your thoughts about a lot of things. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had Kristen Meinzer on to present her case for caring about Meghan Markle and defending Meghan from racist attacks We were actually amazed at how much mail we got about that show. Amazed. So much so, we wanted to make sure we shared this letter we got from a listener named John. John wrote, Yesterday I was solidly in the camp that no one cares about that couple. Your podcast made me examine those feelings in greater depth and a new awareness surfaced. What I'm realizing is that I have bought the very Kool-Aid which I totally abhor, but which I rarely speak against. My excuse is simple. There are so many instances of racism, biases, misogyny, and general misinformation in our society that I feel it's a losing proposition for me to think I can change it. I know that Meghan and Harry rarely show up in my readings. Despite this, whenever I see a reference to them, I can't but think, what, them again? I was wrong, and I subconsciously have been looking for some reasons to justify my own lack of judgment. I am a small voice in millions, and it will not change the world, but it will be heard thanks to your podcast. And you know what, John? You and me both. I I was pretty much in the same mindset, and I also had my mind changed. So solidarity, brother. We cover a lot of challenging opinions on this show, and we are sure that you have your own takes. And you know what? We love to hear them out. So email us. It's hearmeoutatslate.com. Hear Me Out is a podcast from Slate with the best team in the business. The show is produced by Maura Curry. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. I am your host, Celeste Headley. Until next time, speak your mind, but keep it open.